There she is in one faded polychrome, seventeen years old, beaming, dressed casually, sitting cross-legged on a wall, her loafers tucked under her shins. A later photograph, this time in black and white, shows her standing next to her first boyfriend. The handwritten caption underneath indicates later boyfriends and later pages. Victor Io. Victor and I soon becomes Antonio Io, and then Walter Io, the characteristic concerns of a Cuban debutante. One sequence of photographs shows her uncharacteristically demure in a white ball dress walking down a spiral staircase at the Havana Country Club during a fashion gala. Turn the page carefully, and there she is again, this time performing an elegant arabesque while ice skating at Havana's Blanquita Theatre on First Avenue and Ninth Street, since renamed the Karl Marx Theatre. Another shows her with a group of friends, standing in the shallow end of a swimming pool, cocktails in their hands, all laughing. It looks like a scene of bourgeois American life in the 1950s, perhaps in Connecticut. Only it is a photograph of a swimming pool at one of Julio Lobo's many estates outside Havana, where my mother sometimes stayed. It is also the same pool that Lobo supposedly filled with perfume, so that Esther Williams, the Hollywood starlet of bathing beauty, could practice her swimming routines when she visited the island. Such are the legends from which revolutions are made, and then justified. Even as a schoolboy growing up in London, I knew that pre-revolutionary Cuba, with its perfumed waters, had indisputable failings. Everyone in 1970s England told me so. The message seemed to be in the very air I breathed. The red double-decker bus that I took to school each day passed a fashionable clothes shop on Kensington High Street called Red or Dead, which later became Che Guevara. And when that shop finally closed down, a restaurant opened opposite called Bar Cuba. Not only was that distant island ruled by one of the world's longest-serving heads of state whose accomplishments in health and education I was, perforce, quick to recognize, everybody seemed to revere him, too. It was embarrassing. Even as a British schoolboy wearing shorts, a cap, and scuffed black shoes, I wondered if Cuba's failings had been so exceptional as to have nurtured a revolution that had once brought the world to the brink of nuclear war, and had dispersed my mother's family and so many others around the world. It was so at odds with the stories that my mother and her family told me, even though I recognized them as tales of privileged, upper-class Cuban life. I held the question inside me for many years, teasing away at its contradictions in only a tangential way. After college, I left England and worked as a journalist and economist in Colombia, Mexico, and Venezuela. I was searching, of course, for echoes of my mother's family's past, the music, some of the food— the fast, almost slurred Spanish, the mixture of social casualness and Latin formality, the beauty of the mornings before the heat burnt away their colour, and the unforgettable smell of guavas rotting in the sun that always draws one back to the Caribbean, as Gabriel García Márquez once put it. Yet while I spent a decade living around the Spanish Caribbean, I never visited Cuba. One reason I stayed away from the island, I told myself, was to inoculate myself against tropical lyricism. When I eventually travelled to Cuba, I wanted to be able to see through its vehement sunsets, palm trees, and romantic colonial past, in the same way that I wanted to see beyond the glamorous life captured in my mother's photographs. More important, I avoided Cuba because I feared that I wouldn't recognise the island from her stories. Worse, I feared that it wouldn't recognise me. Finally, I began to make short trips. 
For a while in the 1990s, I even ran a newsletter out of a London basement that described the travails of the Cuban economy and what it meant for the island's future. It was a confusing time. The collapse of the Soviet Union had ended Moscow's thirty-year patronage of Fidel Castro, and many exiles hoped that his revolution would finally end too. In Miami, expectations swelled of an eventual return, and among the older generations maybe even something of those glorious pre-revolutionary days as well. In Havana, Castro deftly turned those expectations in on themselves. Even as the Cuban ship of state seemed to be sinking beneath him, he conjured up a mythic image of pre-revolutionary Cuba, only it was an abject vision rather than golden. There can be no going back, he exhorted. Socialismo o muerte. I objected to Fidel. I objected also to the feverish hatred of many exiles' anti-Castroism. From England, the vehemence of their passions, their bitterness and rage, sometimes had the feeling of a flat-earth society.